0: Hello, and a warm welcome to Challenging Performance, a series of podcasts for performers and lovers of Western classical music. My name's Dan Leach-Wilkinson. I was brought up and trained in classical music, and maybe like you, I grew up feeling that it was one of the most wonderful things in life. On a good day, I still believe that. But for performers, musical life is really hard. You're woefully underpaid, considering the skills you have and have to maintain. You have limited, maybe no choice about what you play or how you play it. You're constantly scrutinized to ensure you're doing what's expected. You're stressed and often unwell, though it can be risky to admit that. Your audiences, on the other hand, think everything you do is blissful and that you must love your work and they're lovely people but they belong to a narrow social group that's not getting any younger. So, if music be one of the most wonderful things in life, what's gone wrong and what are we going to do about it? I've got some suggestions. I'm going to look at lots of things that people believe about music and I'm going to challenge them. And then I'm going to suggest how to make our lives in music far more enjoyable and more rewarding. Despite my rather grim opening, it's going to be a lot of fun. So here we go, and here's my title. Challenging performance, classical music performance norms and how to escape them. Episode one, Performance style and what follows. Look for some Hallelujah Choruses online. You'll find performances with a semi-virtual choir of 2,360 or with four soloists accompanied by mandolins performances by organ and brass Choir Community Choir, Steel Band and Dancers, Electronic Organ and Flash Mob. some with small choirs and baroque orchestras that claim to be like Handel's own. To judge by the YouTube comments, all of these inspire and move people intensely. And yet in the hallowed halls of the classical conservatoire, only the tip of this very broad spectrum is cultivated. For classical music, the only proper performance of this score is one that sounds just as Handel's first performances are supposed to have sounded. According to this ideology, the job for which the classical musician is being prepared is to do history in sound. Anything else is wrong. How musicians, critics and other knowledgeable listeners respond to classical performances depends to a large extent on what they believe is proper. If a performance is improper wrong in relation to history or tradition, then however lively, committed, engaging, fluent or technically brilliant the performance may be, the knowledgeable tend at best to disapprove, more often to dislike it strongly. What I want to show in this series though is the danger of beliefs about what's proper in classical music. I'm going to suggest that there are many more possibilities that work musically than we realise at the moment and that musicians' lives would be much more rewarding if they were freer to explore them. In some repertoire we do already allow a surprising diversity of approaches. Mainly this applies where there are parallel traditions using modern and early instruments. Take the first movement of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. There's a world of difference between this, you <laughs> this Louis Lotti and Tom Beggin In effect, these are different moonlight sonatas, yet both are currently acceptable in polite musical society, albeit practised by different musicians with different beliefs about what is musically good. Each seeks to persuade their audience that they have reached the heart of this piece, that their moonlight best evokes Beethoven's. Tellingly, the same audience may be equally moved by both, except for those who believe that one is incorrect. For them, it won't matter how beautiful it is. If it's wrong, they'll hate it. Odd how easily belief overpowers a musical response. Let's now add a third and fourth performance, both around a hundred years old, played by pianists born around eighteen sixty. They learned their musicianship in the eighteen seventies and eighties, nearer to Beethoven than to us. Frederick Lamond was a pupil of Franz Liszt. His Moonlight is very different. <laughs> Paderewski plays the score more slowly but again with much flexibility and he does something else that would horrify a modern piano teacher but that was absolutely normal and considered sensitively musical by Paderewski's contemporaries. He plays the left hand before the right so each bass note anticipates the melody and inner notes written against it in the score. One of the most famous pianists of all time should play in a way that would deny them a conservatoire place today, shows just how relative ideas about musicality are. They change over time and a thoughtful listener today is perfectly well able to appreciate them equally. And yet, when we study with our teacher, when we are judged by examiners and adjudicators, by critics and bloggers, we're constantly being told that even tiny differences in phrasing or loudness or timbre are excessive, out of style, unBeethovenian, and so on. Why so much policing of tiny details when in fact, as our own practice, present and past, shows so clearly, many more ways of being musical with a score are possible and can be and have been entirely convincing? Why can't current practice be much more varied, much less policed, allowing more musicians to offer more varied readings to more varied audiences? Isn't this in everyone's interests? Except perhaps the music police. Why not this? interesting. It works musically, that's to say it works as a sound sequence with melodic and harmonic coherence and dynamic shape, and yet it's a reasonable bet that if you played the Moonlight Sonata like that in concert you wouldn't be invited back. So what's gone wrong? Why is everybody so cross with you for playing it allegro? What has happened that is not musical or that is simply wrong? An obvious answer would be that Beethoven wrote in his score adagio sostenuto and delicatissimamente. But given that he has been dead since 1827, can he be hurt by our playing it Allegro? If it works musically, can even his reputation be harmed? Isn't it rather to his credit that this score works in such radically different ways? Let's take another example. The violinist Patrizia Kopachinskaya has recorded Beethoven's Violin Concerto with what on the face of it seems to be a very innovative first-movement cadenza. Where Beethoven has simply put a pause mark, Kopachinskaya, who plays the violin as if her life depended on it, is soon joined by four cellos, and then by the timpani, and then by the concertmaster in a wild duet. It's thrilling and very different from what we're used to. Listeners' reactions to this vary dramatically. For Andrew McGregor, writing for the BBC's music website, the cadenza, I'm quoting here, amplifies the sense of adventure and genuine rediscovery in a performance whose soaring sound and improvisatory flair are compelling and ultimately highly musical. Robert Braunmuller in the Munich Abendzeitung, who calls Kropachinskaya a lady with her violin, is unashamedly hostile. Patrizia Kopachinskaya deconstructs Beethoven's violin concerto as if it were regi theatre, only unfortunately not as well. At the bottom of the scale, Rondo One Presto, a YouTube viewer, dismissed it as a piece of shit and went on Damn her with that childish cadenza! Reading all the U2 comments is naturally fairly depressing, but what's very clear is that many of the enthusiasts are aware that Kopachinskaya is drawing on Beethoven's own cadenza, written for his own arrangement of the score as a piano concerto, and many of the objectors are not. That the notes Kopachinskaya is playing while they may sound new, were actually written down by Beethoven, seems to matter desperately to people. It changes their entire feeling about what just happened. On the one hand, it was a fabulous musical experience. On the other, it was shit. Yet the sounds in each case were exactly the same. What does this tell us about the ability of people with musical knowledge to make musical judgments? The musically uneducated listener has no difficulty at all. The problem simply doesn't exist for them. For them, the only question is, was that a thrilling experience? If it was, it was a great performance. It's only the person with training who can hear a potentially thrilling performance and think it was shit because of what they believe to be a historical fact. This is just as true of my hypothetical moonlight example. Once one knows that the score is marked adagio sostenuto, a performance allegro furioso, however thrilling it may be for an innocent listener, is shockingly wrong, a violation of deeply held beliefs about faithful performance. The listener's innocence, needless to say, is innocence of the composer's instructions to the performer. And for most musicians, and most music philosophers and musicologists and music theorists, and most people in the classical music business, the composer's instructions are non-negotiable. They must be obeyed. This is a key belief, perhaps the key belief, on which so much else depends. In each of these examples, we see that belief outweighs aesthetics. As long as beliefs are unchallenged, almost anything goes aesthetically. Contrary-wise, if beliefs are challenged, nothing does. As long as we believe we're hearing what Beethoven imagined all is well. Now you don't have to think very hard to see that what we're hearing today in any of these performances cannot possibly be what Beethoven imagined. Too much has changed in the last 200 years as the early recorded performances show so clearly and yet we still feel we need Beethoven's approval. The idea is that he would have approved if he could have heard what we do now. Without the composer's approval, it seems impossible for the classical music belief system, its ideology, to accept that a performance is legitimate, however exciting or convincing it might otherwise seem. But where does Beethoven's approval come from? How does he give it me? How do I know I have it? I know I get shredded by the critics if they think I don't, but who is harmed? Is Beethoven harmed now? How exactly? The further we go, asking questions about these kinds of beliefs and the contradictions they require, the clearer it becomes that woven into classical music ideology is much wishful and muddled thinking and compromise and unquestioned contradiction and special pleading. The extent of all these points to something profoundly disturbed about the ideology surrounding classical music. Far from a creative artistic practice, we find that any kind of music-making lying outside the extremely narrow bounds of the ideology is, in effect, forbidden. It takes a moment to realise the full implications of that idea. In what kind of society, Is an artist forbidden certain kinds of artistic creativity? Is policing necessary to generate the joy and fulfilment we experience from a great performance? Does it keep musicians happy? What kind of artistic practice is this, in which performers spend around 20 early years of their lives learning to do just what they are told? Is it worth the effort at all if that extraordinarily demanding training leaves one as little more than a mechanism for the performance of norms, for doing history with sound. And if those norms are riddled with contradictions, muddled and wishful thinking, as we've begun to see, then who has one been forced to become? What values, whose values, do we perform as we ostensibly play our deepest selves through these remarkably potent scores? the imagined values of the imagined composer? Why should we faithfully obey anything that fabricated and confused? Much of this series of podcasts is concerned with how to refuse to be policed and about the benefits that could result for musicians and audiences if that kind of oppression were to be lifted. I'm going to try to show the flaws in this kind of normative thinking and to offer young professional musicians a way out of the straitjacket that norms attempt to impose, licensing much more varied performance in theory and offering models of how it can be achieved in practice. At the same time, I shall argue that a more creative approach to playing canonical and non canonical scores will bring benefits for musicians in well being, prosperity, and public esteem, and benefits for audiences in fascination, revelation and pleasure. Most importantly, the series aims to empower performers and music lovers sufficiently for them to overcome the inevitable appalled hostility of gatekeepers to the profession – teachers, examiners, adjudicators, critics, managers and the rest – who will now have to see classical music in a fresh light the consequences may well be hair-raising. Richard Taraskian argued over a decade ago that there are no limits of principle that can be placed on the musical interpretation of a score, and that the worth of what a performer does with a score can only be judged by the listener. This may seem an insanely anarchic view to hold about classical music, but I hope, as we work through the arguments that construct the case I make here, I may gradually persuade you that this is the only criterion that really counts. Or at any rate, if I fail to convince you, you may at least take away a more liberal view of what musicians are entitled to do when they use scores as a starting point to make art with sound.